You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, please visit Stonegate.Church. Hebrews chapter 12 is where we're going to be today. Hebrews 12. So grab your Bible and open it to Hebrews 12. And um, really what I want to do for the next few minutes that we have together is frame the next 10 years for us. The, the, the first 10 have been amazing. I mean, the Lord has done such extraordinary, crazy things. I, I just could have never have believed a decade ago. And now here we are looking at the next 10, and I want to spend a few minutes just framing and giving us a way to think about the next decade in front of us, the next 10 that the Lord is going to give our church family. And to do that, I want to look at Hebrews chapter 12, the first couple of verses here. The scriptures say this, Therefore, Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance, with endurance, the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. This passage has one big idea, and I just want to just spend a few minutes elevating and lifting up this big idea for us to look at and consider, and here's the big idea of the passage. The main thing this passage is trying to say is it's looking at us, and it's addressing us, and it's reminding us that we have a race to run. That there is a race to be run, that you do, that we collectively as a church, we have a race to run. That's the point of, of, this, of this particular passage to that church a couple of thousand years ago that it was specifically written to. And now we're reading it a few thousand years later and it's the point to us that, that we have a race to run. Now, let me just make a few observations about that race. It starts out that last, look at that last phrase of verse 1. It says, let us. The letter of Hebrews was written to a church. And that letter was received by the church. And a person stood up in front of the church and read that letter to the entirety of the church. That's why it's saying, let let us, a church as a whole. So obviously there is all sorts of personal application in Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. But I want to do everything I can this morning to let the emphasis of us to stand. I want to apply it most directly to us corporately as a church family, to us, the people of Stonegate, to to this particular church family. I, I want to apply it that way, letting the us stand. So it says, let us run the race. Now that imagery of running the race is really imagery for the Christian life. It's imagery for what life with Jesus looks like. It's a race or it's a journey. And when you're thinking about that race, um, think uh, less like a track. Don't think track. Don't think uh, we're on a track and it's the same loop over and over and over again. And our life with God just sort of repeats itself over and over and over. It's less track-like and it's more cross-country-like. That's the race that the Lord has given us. Um, Think about the heart of God for a moment. The heart of God is as vast as the universe. I mean, think about heaven. 
the new heavens and the new earth. We're going to spend forever in the new heavens and the new earth. And in the new heavens and the new earth, we're going to continually be discovering new sort of heart-pumping realities in the heart of God. We're going to spend forever doing that and never get bored. It's going to be amazing. Just exploring the vastness of the heart of God. And when Jesus here is saying, you have a race to run. That is an invitation to every son and daughter of God, to, to every brother and sister of Jesus. It's an invitation to all of us to start that exploration in the heart of God right now. Jesus is saying, I've got things for you to do. I've got parts of, of me that I want you to experience. So, so come on, run that race. Get about the things I've called you to do. Run, run the race. Let us run the race. And then it says this, that is set before us. This race that is set before us. Isn't it an amazing thing to consider that before there was something called time, God could see Stonegate Church, and in seeing our church, he set a race for it. He marked a course for us to walk, to, to run with him. Isn't that an amazing thing to think about, that, that we were inside of the heart of God before there ever was a thing called time? And our race is going to share many things in common with other churches. There's many uh, things that God has called every church to do. But at the same time, what, what God entrusts to, to each church is unique. Every church, although there, yes, there are commonalities in the race, God entrusts something unique to every church. And that means that, that for every church to steward that, that, to steward that unique thing that God has done for them, is a unique responsibility. So, so yes, there's commonalities between every church, but, but yes, there is a specific course, a particular race that God has marked out for us as a church. Last Sunday, we got our home group leaders together, and we were just uh, chatting uh, kind of with our group leaders, and we were talking about uh, the book of Acts. And the book of Acts is really an amazing book, isn't it? It's an exciting book. There's so much happening in the book of Acts. Uh, the people of God, filled with the Spirit of God, were multiplying. So if you just start reading in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 2, 3,000 people to the church are added. In Acts chapter 4, 5,000 people to the church are added. It's just things are happening. It, Jesus is doing extraordinary work in and around the church. And Stonegate, I, I, I just don't want us to miss that Jesus is doing extraordinary things around us. He's doing really unique things around you. I've been in church for a long time, and I've never seen the Lord do this sort of thing that he is in the middle of doing right now in our midst. Uh, you know, if you were here just a couple of weeks ago, we baptized 20 people just a few weeks ago. In our first 10 years, we've played a part in planting over 20 churches. I mean, if we were just to shrivel up and die today, I could die a pretty happy man in light of that. 20 churches. In just the last few months, we've seen nine adoptions. And in the last 15 months, we've added about 1,300 people to our church family. It, it is just, I mean, the Lord is doing extraordinary things in and around our church family. When I look back over the last 10 years, it's just full of the miracles of Jesus. Now, when I look forward to the next 10 years, to our next decade of ministry, I, I think the next decade could be breathtaking for us. I think in the next decade, we might see thousands of conversions. Like not, not 8,000, but like thousands of conversions. I think we're going to see 50, 60, 70 churches planted. 
I mean, what, what God has done in the first 10 is amazing, but, but I think what God might have for us in the next 10 could be in multiples. This is the race that he has set before us, and he's inviting us into that. Is that not amazing? God is looking at us and saying, I've set that race for y'all. Now y'all come and play. Y'all come and run that race with me. And then he says one more thing, though, one more observation about this race. He says, let us run, and then he adds this little word into it, with endurance. But with endurance, the race that I've set before you. Now, why is that word endurance in there? With endurance. What is that word showing us? Well, it is, it is saying something about the race. It, that, that word is showing us that the race is not easy. That the race is hard. It, it's showing us that just because you have a great first 10 years of ministry doesn't necessarily mean that you'll have a second 10 of just great and fruitful ministry. You know, if you, if you just look at the landscape of churches, there are countless churches who, who were once used for great things by Jesus. I mean, just doing incredible things, but they have gone on to die really sad deaths. That is the story of many churches. So, so to run well, that the author of Hebrews is alerting us. It requires endurance, steadfastness, a stick-to-itness. It, it requires the ability to suffer long with Jesus. Now, I look at all that, and I'm like, well, how in the world are we ever going to do that then? How, how are we going to make it? How are we going to endure well with Jesus as we run this thing? And I love this particular passage because it gives us three helps. It gives us three helps along the way as we're running with Jesus. And the three helps come in these, these three ways. The, the encouragement, the, the warning, and then the necessity. The encouragement, the warning, and the necessity. So I'll just take these in parts. First, the encouragement. Look at verse 1, the first part. So the big idea is, is we've got a race to run, so let's get about running it. But here comes the encouragement. Therefore... Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. Now that therefore links us back to chapter 13. And if you know chapter 13, it's a really famous chapter in the Bible. Some people refer to it as the Hall of Faith. It's an amazing chapter. It's got this reoccurring phrase throughout uh, chapter 11 where it'll say, by faith, it'll supply a name, and then it's just going to tell story after story after story of men and women who have laid it on the line for Jesus. They've endured. They, they, they were steadfast. They made it to the end. They, they didn't just start well. They actually finished this thing. It's just story after story of men and women who have run their race faithfully. Jesus looked at them in chapter 11 and says, these men and women who have walked by faith, these men and women, the world is not worthy of these men and women. It's this cloud of witnesses. And the author of Hebrews is, is saying through them that we're surrounded by, by this cloud of witnesses, by these brothers and sisters who, who have started well and then they ended, that they finished the course, that they ran the race. So he, he's just, the author of Hebrews is, is imploring us to, to look at this cloud of witnesses, to observe them, to look at their lives, to be encouraged by them. He's just pleading with us to, to let their lives preach to us, to, to let their lives urge us not to waste our lives, to, to make our lives count in the race that Jesus has given us to, to run. That, that's what that cloud of witnesses is there for. 
to encourage us and to help us along. And we all need a cloud of witnesses like this. It's one reason we should all read good Christian biographies too. We all need this, and here's the reason that we need it. Every one of our hearts are constantly pulled to triviality, to things that are just so insignificant that are not going to matter when it's all said and done. All of our hearts are pulled toward that. And everything around you and me is seducing us into believing that small things are the big things. I mean, everything around you is, is working to convince you to build your life on insignificant, trivial things, like your Facebook feed, like your Instagram feed, your Twitter feed, your news feed, like virtually everything you watch on TV. It's just luring you in, seducing you into building your life on things that just don't matter, small things. And we all need a cloud of witnesses around us to, to point us away from small things and to the huge things in life that really matter, like the eternal things, the things that are big enough to, to, to actually support our lives. We all need a cloud of witnesses to do that. I, right now, many of us came in this room and we are obsessed with things that are so trivial and insignificant. Man, my heart just like grabs at those sorts of things. And this cloud of witnesses is there to encourage us. Don't, don't build your life on that. It's too small for your life. We all need this cloud of witnesses to remind us that at the end of the day, um, the baton is now in our hand. See, none of us are here in a vacuum. We have, we have faithful brothers and sisters that, that just line history that have gotten us to this point. They've run their race well. They handed it to the next generation. They, they ran their race. Next generation, they ran their race. And now they put it in your hand, my hand, our hand together. And that cloud of witnesses is looking at us now and saying, it's your time to run. It's your time to do this. They've gone before us and they've made it and they're looking at us now and saying, yes, the race is going to be hard. Yes, it's going to be full of sacrifices. But yes, it's worth it. It's worth it. So run well. They're looking at us and saying, look at my life. I'm imperfect. I've got so many failings, but I started it and I finished it. And if I made it, you can make it. You can run well. But we all need a cloud of witnesses like that to remind us, to encourage us. Then comes the warning. Look back at verse 1. Therefore, since we, have sur we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, there's your encouragement. Here's the warning. Let us also lay aside every weight. Let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Starting well does not equal finishing well. Many churches start well, many people start well, so well, and just end so poorly. Starting well does not equate into finishing well. And the author of Hebrews identifies two things that, that keep us from running well, that in a lot of ways will derail the race that we're on. And here are the two things, sins and weights. Now, if you take th those two things together and put them into one category, they are establishing a type of thing that will derail a church, 
the type of thing that can kill a church, the type of thing that can just, can just rob a church of its fruitfulness. That, that's what sins and weights are doing. They're establishing a thing. It's the author of Hebrews saying, hey, there are things out there that will kill your church. Just, just rob your church of all sorts of things that the Lord would want to do in it. Those things exist. So, so what are they? What, what are a few of those things for us? And this could be multiple sermons. Let me just give you two things that, that can rob a church of fruitfulness, that can derail the race that a church is on. Here are two things. Here's the first. Churches can lose their first love. And when they do, fruitfulness is robbed. The race is derailed. Churches can lose their first love. Listen to these words, sobering words, in Revelation chapter 2. This is Jesus talking to the church in Ephesus. Revelation chapter 2. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who, who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. Now, those are great things, isn't it? Jesus is looking at this church and saying, I, I know you. I, I, I know you, your heart. I, I see what's in you. I, I know you, and I see that you're serious about doctrine. Like You're actually calling out false prophets and false teachers. You're drawing the line where Jesus would want you to draw the line. He's, he's saying, I, I see that, and I, I recognize that. You're serious about doctrine. And then he goes on to, 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 to affirm in them that it's not only that I see your doctrine, but your right doctrine is leading to right living. Uh, this was a church that was serious about holiness. Uh, they, uh, he applauds their patient endurance, how they cannot bear with those who are evil. I mean, they're serious about right living, about holiness, about pursuing Jesus in that way. Uh, in verse 3, he goes on, I know you. Like he, he sees these things in him. I, I know you. Uh, you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. Jesus is saying, I, I, I know, I see that you're suffering well for me. I mean, it, it, these are all great things. When I, when I read verses 2 and 3 out of Revelation 2, I'm like, I want to go to that church. I mean, if that church is in Midlothian, I, that's the church I would want to be at. But, but then you get to verse 4. But, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Now, that's an unexpected turn in that passage, isn't it? When you read verses 2 and 3, if you just picture yourself for the first time reading that passage, when you read verses 2 and 3, you're expecting this passage to just continue along the path of affirmation. But we take a hard left right in the middle of verse 4, and Jesus says, yes, your doctrinal fidelity is amazing. Your, your holiness, you're pursuing right living, that's amazing. Your long-suffering is, is amazing. All of those things are great, but here's the problem. You've lost your first love. You're doing amazing things for me. You're suffering well for me. You know the right things about me, but somewhere along the way, your love's grown cold for me. You've grown apathetic. You no longer love me the way you used to love me. You've lost your first love. Stonegate, there are many things we can lose and do without as a church, but a deep, rich, vibrant love of Jesus is not one of them. We just cannot lose our first love. 
And this is a danger for every church. Every church is in danger of losing its first love. Not just the church in Ephesus, but our church. Stonegate Church is in danger of that at all times. And here's the reason. It's because right now there is a war. There's always a war raging for your affections, for, for corporately, for our, for our affections. There are plenty of contenders lobbying for our love, just doing everything they can to seduce us into loving them more than Jesus. Right? This is why the book of Jude says, keep yourselves in the love of God. Because if you just let yourself drift, you're not going to be in the love of God. You're going to be loving other things a little more than God. You're going to lose your first love if you drift. So, so keep yourself in the love of God. Uh, several years ago, I saw an ad. Uh, it was for a wedding dress. And uh, the ad was showing, it was a picture of a bride-to-be looking down at her wedding dress. And here was the caption right beside uh, the, the wedding dress and this bride. Love him but love your dress more. Love, love him, yes, but that dress right there, you love that even more. Now, that is the lie that every follower of Jesus is confronted with about a thousand times a day. Hey, love Jesus. That's great. You can love Jesus all you want to love Jesus. Just love that a little bit more. Just love that house a little bit more. Just love this thing over here a little bit more. Just love that bank account a little bit more. Just, just, you can love Jesus all you want, but just love that a little bit more than Jesus. Every follower of Jesus is confronted with that lie thousands of times a day. If you remember Jesus, he, he told a parable called the parable of the soils. And that third soil that Jesus talks about, he says, here's the problem. Here's the problem with all of us, every one of us. This is a problem. Uh, there, there are, there's something called the cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches, the desire for other things. And, and those things right there, the cares, the deceitfulness of riches, the desire for other things, they are like weeds constantly sprouting and growing in our heart that, that choke out a love of Jesus. You're susceptible to that. I'm susceptible to that. As a church, we're susceptible to that. This is why every church is in danger of losing Jesus as their first love. So we should ask ourselves. We shouldn't assume that Jesus is our first love. We should ask that. We, we should ask, have we lost Jesus as our first love? Years ago, I read this book called A Hunger for God, and the, the author, he, he asked that question, do you have a hunger for God? Do, do you long for Jesus? Like, do you love Jesus? That's what he's asking. Do, do you have a hunger for God? And then he goes on to say this. If we don't feel strong affections for the manifestations of the glory of God, I, God, I, I want more of you. I love you more than anything else in the world. If we're not feeling strong manifestations for the glory of God, it's not because we have drunk deeply and are satisfied. It is because we have nibbled so long at the table of the world. Our soul is stuffed with small things, and there is no room left for the great. God did not create you for this. Stonegate, there are many things we can do without as a church, but a deep, rich, vibrant love of Jesus is not one of them. Maybe you could ask it this way. When's the last time your heart's been so tenderized by the dying love of Jesus that it's brought you to tears? 
When's the last time that's happened? Is that like years ago, decades ago? When's the last time your heart's been so tenderized by the dying love of Jesus that you've been brought to tears? Is your heart open to Jesus, tender for Jesus, longing for Jesus? Have you, have you lost your first love? If you remember how this passage ends, Jesus essentially says to the, to the church in Ephesus, he says, when, when you put other loves in front of me, when you do that, because I love you, church, I now have to work against you, my bride. But when you put other loves in front of me, Jesus looks at his church and says, I love you as my bride too much. I love you so much that when you do that, I actually have to work against you. And what just must be such a grievous moment for Jesus. When we put other loves in front of him, Jesus takes his hand of blessing off a church. He removes his felt presence from a church. And that church that was once so vibrant and alive shrivels up and dies. That's what happened to the church in Ephesus. And this passage is reminding us that can happen to us. Churches, that they lose their first love. These, these sins and weights really can derail the race that Jesus has set before us. It can rob us of fruitfulness. It can kill us as a church. Churches lose their first love. Here's the second sort of sins and weights that, that can kill a church. Churches can lose their first love, but churches can also lose their willingness to risk. They can lose their willingness to risk. You know, when I think about the first 10 years of Stonegate's life, it's the story of two things happening. And here are the two things. One of those things is the ongoing just miracle after miracle, after miracle of Jesus. That's one. And that's the decisive thing about our past. It's that Jesus has met us with extraordinary work, the miracles of Jesus. But here's the secondary thing. The other thing that when I look back over the last 10 years has been present. On one hand, it's miracles from Jesus. On the other hand, it's a people willing to bleed for the mission, willing to risk, willing to sacrifice, willing to keep it on the line. That that's the reason, that those two things coming together, that that's the reason we have been so fruitful in our first 10 years. Now, when I look to the next 10 years, I have no doubt that the Lord is going to keep meeting us with miracles. I think he's going to be so faithful to do that, to, to just keep that extraordinary work going around us. But that leads to really what I think is the defining question of our next 10 years. The question of our next 10 years is, will we stay willing to risk? Will we stay willing to bleed? Will, will we keep putting everything on the line for Jesus' sake? Will we do that? Will our second 10 be like our first 10 in that way? Will we stay at the line ready to say yes to, to anything and everything Jesus puts before us? And here's the thing. Just like a church is always in danger of losing their first love, a church is always in danger of losing their willingness to risk. Everything around us is working against us doing that. Everything around us is. Think about the way our culture disciples us. We are all living in a culture that, that is steeped in and just it teaches us in a million different ways to make sacrifices early, 
to take risk when you're, long, when you're young, but you're going to embrace those risks when you're, when you're young. You do that now so you won't have to later. You make those sacrifices early so you don't have to make those sacrifices later. I mean, th this is how most of us think about our retirement, right? This is our culture's sort of ideal retirement. We've already, we've already taken the risk. We've already made the sacrifices. Now we can just, we've built our life to, to a certain point, to a certain level, that we can just sort of put it on cruise control and coast until the sun sets. Our culture is just steeping us in that way of seeing the world. Our culture disciples us so well in this that most of us, somewhere along the way, adopt a way of living that says, the purpose of my life is to arrive safely at death. That's how most of us think about our life. The purpose. Like the reason God asked me here is just I want to make it safely to that moment. I just need a few dollars in the bank account. I just, if I can make it safely to death, then, then I'm okay. I've lived. No, that is not the purpose of your life. The purpose of your life is to know and enjoy Jesus. The purpose of your life is to walk in those good works that he's planned for you. And that means that we have to continually embrace risk. There's never a moment in our life where we get to coast and just say, cruise control until the sun sets. Ne never a moment where we get to do that. I'll never forget this, uh, this moment. I was in my early 20s. I'd just kind of taken a ministry job. I was in the middle of seminary, and I found this guy. He was probably, I don't know, he's probably about 40 at the time, and I would meet with him periodically over at the seminary. And we are in the middle of the seminary cafeteria. Uh, eating dinner one night, meeting together, and he uh, stopped eating. And if you knew this guy, th this moment would make such good sense to you. He, he stopped eating. He kind of created a moment. He looked at me in the eye, waited until I was looking at him in the eye, and he said, Rodney, how do you want to die? I'm like, well, let me think about that. He said, Rodney, how do you want to die? And just looking me straight in the eye, he said, do you want to die sucking applesauce through a straw in a nursing home? Or do you want to die risking with ambition, with your, with your, just, your fingernails dirty, with some new ambition and venture for the name of Jesus? How do you want to die? And I just look back, I was probably 25 years old, I just am so thankful for that moment because everything in me is saying, not like that, but like this. That's how I want to die one day. Now, let me be clear. It's not a sin to die in a nursing home, sucking applesauce through a straw. That's not, that's not a sin to do that. But it is sinful, now hear me, but it is sinful to lose our ambition for Jesus. It is sinful to lose our willingness to risk for some new venture for Jesus' sake. That is sinful. And just like people do that all the time, Churches do that all the time. They just, they just lose their willingness to risk, to keep it on the line. Do you remember that story in Numbers 13? Israel is on the banks of the promised land. The people of God are just, they can reach out and touch the land that was promised to them by God. I mean, they're just right there. They're, they're looking at it. They can reach out and touch it. And, and they send 12 spies into the land. They stay there for 40 days. They come back and they make a report to the people of God. And Caleb and Joshua, they stand up first and they say, let's do this. Yeah, yeah there's people in there. And yes, they're huge. But, but God is walking with us. God, God is with us. So let's go and do the thing that Jesus has given us to, to do. And then the other 10 stand up. 
and the other ten um, look at the people of Israel and they say, but, but y'all don't know how big those people are. You don't know how many of them there are. To use their own language, they said, we actually felt like grasshoppers in their presence. They were that big. They're scary. I, there's no way we're going to make it in there. We, there's, we can't do that. And the people of God drew a line between them and Jesus, and they looked at Jesus and said, I will not, we will not do this. And for the people of Israel, their unwillingness to risk translated into waste. Rather than walking into the promised land with God, they spent the next 40 years walking in the wilderness, waiting for every risk-averse adult to die so the next generation could go and get what God had for them. So every church has to ask the question, is that the story we want? Is the story we want, God's going to have to kill half of us to get something done around here? I mean, is that, is that the story we want? No, it's not the story we want. We want the story, when we look back over our life, we want that story to be, we took every risk that we knew to take for Jesus' sake. I mean, isn't that the story you want? I mean, think about your own life. What is that story that you want? Is it that you were so fearful that you just, you, 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 could, you just wouldn't, you wouldn't take that plunge toward God? Or is it, no, every time Jesus puts something in front of me, by God's grace, I step toward him. I mean, that's the story we all want. In the end, there are only two options for us as people and for us as a church. And the options are, we'll risk our life for Jesus' sake or we'll waste it. But that's it. Those are the only two options. We'll, we'll risk for Jesus' sake or we'll waste it. If we hold out on God, one day we'll hold a wasted life. Or as one pastor said it, it's either risk or rust. And if those are the only two options, is there really any choice? I mean, are any of us in here saying, I'll take rust. Give me the waste. No, none of us are saying that. Which means we all have to stack our hands together that we are going to stay at the edge of our faith, willing to risk, willing to say yes to everything Jesus puts in front of us. And Jesus is reminding us in this passage, there are sins and weights. And churches do lose their willingness to risk. And when they do, it derails their race. When they do, it will eventually kill that church. When they do, it robs that church of ministry fruitfulness. That's the warning. And now the necessity. Look at verse 2. The author of Hebrews says, Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him, verse 3. Consider Jesus. Look to Jesus. Consider him who endured from, from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. How are we ever going to run this race well? How are we ever going to not just start well, but end well? How are we ever going to do that? This passage shows us it's, it's looking to Jesus, always looking to Jesus. T today, we get up and we're looking to Jesus. Tomorrow, we get up and we're looking to Jesus. When people bump into us and they wonder, what in the world are they looking at? It's always to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. He's the one that created this thing. 
He's the one that, that brought our faith into being. He's the one and the only one who sustains our faith. We're looking and we're always looking to Jesus who endured the cross despising its shame, substituting himself for us, him taking our sin, us receiving his perfect record of righteousness, him taking the wrath that we deserve, us receiving the welcome that he deserves. It's always, forever, ongoingly looking to Jesus who rose from the grave on the third day, then ascended to the right hand of God the Father and who reigns over this world. Isn't it amazing to know that all history is going to culminate at the feet of Jesus? One day history will culminate with the whole lot of humanity on their faces before this risen and reigning Jesus. And the only way we as a church, we as people, will ever run this race well is if we are looking to Jesus, considering Jesus every moment, every day, every year, every decade of our church's life. So we'll close here. How in the world should we respond today? Looking at the next 10, what would be the appropriate response? I think Jonathan Edwards, he was a pastor of a couple of hundred years ago, models what our response should be today. The year was 1723. He was roughly 20 years old, a pastor. He had just met with God over uh, the scriptures, just like we have just done. We've met with God over his word. And then following that moment of meeting with God, he breaks open his journal, cracks open his journal, and he writes these words. I have been before God, and I have given myself all that I am and all that I have to God, so that I am not in any respect my own. I have given myself clear away and have not retained anything as my own. Everything I have, everything I want to be, past, present, future, it's all God's. I have this morning told him that I did take him as my whole happiness. It's amazing when I think 10 years ago in a living room, a small group of a few adults, and here's what happened 10 years ago. Those couple of dozen people offered themselves to Jesus. Here I am. Past, present, future. God, here I am. We are a blank check. Write whatever you will. Here we are. And isn't it amazing what God has done with that moment in that living room? And now here we are on the brink of the next 10. And can you imagine what God might want to do, not with a couple of dozen people in a living room, but a couple of thousand of us, if we would humbly get ourselves before God and re-offer ourselves to him? Can you imagine? And here's the amazing thing, Stonegate. Jesus is looking at all of us right now this morning and saying, what if you just trusted me enough to step into that and to come and find out what I might have for you? So will you bow your head there where you are? And I want to give you just a moment there before the Lord.
That's how it started 10 years ago. God hears, hears our lives. It's a blank before you, oh God. Write on that whatever you want. God, whatever you say, whatever you want, the, the yes is there. There's no strings attached to that yes. We're not pulling that yes back off the table. God, whatever you want, whenever you want it, yes, yes. That, that's our answer. And that is the right, appropriate way to start the next 10. So I want to give you the chance this morning to do just that. There where you are, to offer yourselves to God. If you came in with a family today, maybe you're a mom or a dad, this would be a great time to put your arm around your family and just to pray that to God. To say to God, God, here, here we are. Everything that we are, everything that we're not, all of our, our strengths, all of our failings. God, you know the weaknesses that we bring to, to the table. But God, everything we are, we're just, we're, we're just re-offering. We're putting ourselves before you, saying to you, yes, oh God, yes. Whatever you want, yes, God. Whenever you want it, yes, God. If you're single in the room, this is, gosh, what a precious time for you to be able just to, to re-offer yourself to the Lord. So, Father, we are looking at you today and we are saying, we are yours. We are yours. We're offering ourselves as a blank before you. And God, we're just inviting you, whatever you want to do with that blank, whatever you want to write on that blank, God, it, it, it's your say, not ours. God, all we're saying to you today is yes. That, that's our answer, God, it's yes. And so, Father, would you take the next decade and would you multiply it? God, would you bless it? God, would you keep the heart of this church in love with you, our first love? God, would you make us into a people willing to risk, always willing to risk, always ready to keep it on the line? Oh God, would you do that? Would you give us the courage right now, right here in this holy moment, just offering our lives? God, would you, would you do that for us? It's in your good name that we ask it. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church. A podcast is never meant to replace gathering with your church to hear the preaching of the Bible. So we want to encourage you to be part of a local church family. We meet every Sunday at 9 and 11 a.m. and would love for you to join us as we enjoy Jesus together.